Well, and thank you. I, I wanted to thank you uh, in particular for this invitation and uh, Lynn as well. Lynn and I have uh, a long uh, relationship that's been conducted by post. And if I remember, George Bernard Shaw said the best relations are conducted by post. So I hope I'm not going to ruin this by uh, actually uh, having a relation in person. Um, I, as I've sat here over the last couple of days, I, there are two points I want to make before I go on to give my paper. Um, and and I, I've been thinking a lot about the transitive quality of the unconscious um, and uh, what that might mean for us as we try to think about transdisciplinarity. Um, and I've also been thinking a lot about the idea of the transfer and ideas of transference within uh, psychoanalysis and uh, psychotherapy and the uh, enigmatic transfer between uh, parent and child. Um, and I hope that in some of what I have to say here today, we'll, uh, we'll touch on that, and perhaps those are elements that we can discuss. The title of my paper is The Transforming Nexus, Psychoanalysis, Social Theory, and Childhood. 21st century clinical psychoanalysis surely has as much to do with feminism, queer theory, and social philosophy as it does with Freudian tenets, post-war British object relations theory, American ego psychology, or even modern attachment models. The social critique of the normal is now developing developmental theories. Questioning the rigid necessity of a normative symbolic order has led not only to rethinking human development, but also to the reconception of psychotherapeutic care. This modern frame of mind has only been articulated in a relatively small quarter of psychoanalysis, a guild of small sectors, yet it reaches into virtually every mode of psychoanalytic practice. Psychoanalysts have begun to rethink life as a complex psychosoma social field open to multiple points of reference, normative expectation, and inimitable relational bonds. Theorists now place the evolving human in an evolving relational world. They do so by leaning into bedrock psychoanalytic presuppositions as to the ways in which fantasy is interimplicated with embodiment and mind. Bodies and mind are seen as open to a range of fantastic expressions and relational dynamics, including traumatic intromissions as well as non-normative openings. If one accepts the relational, that relational dynamics create varying intersubjective spaces, spaces from and through which humans emerge, spaces that are more or less coherent and more or less organizing and loving, spaces that inflect the manner of the enigmatic transfer of fantasies and attributes, then one is also has to be open to considering the ways in which the evolution of the human is open to a range of relational organizations and coherence. Further, if one also accepts that the human is never outside of social regulation, even before birth, even in resistance, and if it is additionally accepted that humans are formed and constituted by cultural norms, then one is left to question the attribution of that which is called originary. There is no pure psychology of the protagonist, no pure mother, no pure child. There is no pure authority of the past. 
intromissions both traumatic and nurturing are always and already socially and historically constituted and thereby open to a variety of nuance and contradiction and complication. Without a theory that locates such perception and assessment within the constituting frame of the social, we are left with no social demarcation for the clinical scene of address. We are left with a neutral analyst who appears as if he magically lives outside the inside, as if he is not regulated by cultural norms and twisted by the drill of the normative. The ethical insufficiency that issues from this lack uh, is that it leaves the therapist inadequately prepared to address countertransference and to recognize if counter-resistance or counter-anxiety is being repeated through normative presumption and reactive pathologizing. At stake here is nothing less than how we measure the well-being of our fellow citizens, and in turn, how we are rethinking the sphere of the psychological, including the ethics and modes of care that constitute the therapeutic scene of address. Rethinking the psychological sphere has been intertwined with a reconsideration of psychotherapeutic action. Focusing on the work of reverie and potential space has been central to these considerations. A premium is placed on discerning the role of fantasy as it builds, uh, as, I'm sorry, as it builds potential space between analyst and patient. This technique is not distinguished from the long-standing classical mode of suspension that grounds, or more precisely ungrounds, psychoanalytic listening. We listen with free-floating ears, we suspend and hover, we look toward manifest expressions of the recathecting unconscious. Modern technique, however, is distinguished from classical modes of apprehending the patient in that the free in free association is problematized even as it is sought it is understood that no one lives outside the inside and that fantasy, interiority, and relationality are always and already constituted by cultural norms for both patient and analyst alike. The work of normative regulation as it regulates affective and ethical dispositions is held in view, held as regulatory force comes to bear through anxiety and aggression, through attachment and security, through love and hate, on any narrative. The frame of psychotherapeutic action has also been rethought as a potential field open to both the patient and analyst, one that necessitates a broader based analysis, one that includes the relational exchange between patient and analyst, not just what has come to be called the one-person psychology of the patient. I have come to think of one technical feature of this practice as seeking what I refer to as a transforming nexus. I move here to illustrate this process. I do so because I think I could not think this process outside of my tripled education in psychoanalysis, feminism, and queer theory. The Congress and accomplishment of this union, this potential space, if you will, seems important to catalog and consider. What is more, it is the suspension, the knitting nexus, and the transfers that unfurl to shape this space that clinical psychoanalysis has to offer, as it may be similar to and or distinguished from queer literary, theoretical, or textual analytic instruments, aims, and spaces. In speaking of distinction, I do not aim toward the differences between a text and a patient. 
Frankly, I don't find the blunt distinction between a patient and a text to be terribly productive. Yes, in the consulting room, analysts are posed with the pressing reality of the other. But are we not also pressed by the imminence of Anna Karenina as she makes her way to the train station? How different is our affective range, reach, and even consequence with a patient or with a fictive character? Indeed, a patient may demand something immediate, a response that hinges on our immediate affective resonance employed in the service of reciprocal action, speech, interpretation. But might a fictive character also press for immediacy? Fictive creations demand, pull at us, and are not so easily pushed aside. Our response may be impotent, as is true with patients as well. We can warn Anna, and I would go so far as to argue that we are warning her in the act of reading, but it will do no good. Still in all, might it be the case that our affective resonance and reciprocal experience found in the textual realm operates on a different temporal register? Does Anna come back to us, unknowing, unbid, as we struggle to meet the pressing reality of the other in the consulting room? I not only think she does, I'm glad she does. I take the time to make these points about texts and patients because, in my view, there are differing and yet overlapping modes of reality and reciprocity. Theory can be built in the relational rush of reading. Theory can be built through the relational bids with a patient. I do not think we can so easily cleave the theoretical promise and intervention of clinical psychoanalysis from what is gleaned through the practice of textual analyses. The distinction that interests me is not the patient or text, but the quality of the analysis brought to bear. The clinical textual project of theory-making is more productively approached if we consider how the modern shift in analytic instrument and aim open onto broader considerations of interpretation. Modes of interpretation, interpretive technique, how interpretations are offered, and to what end. Are interpretations offered as a way to name a gap, a discursive lack, or are they offered within a field? Might they do both? Are they offered in accord with well-known signposts of depth, modes of understanding that maybe dutifully repeat classical psychoanalytic presuppositions with too little regard for the vicissitudes of the human and the evolving social order? Or is the interpretive arc paced in an idiomatic and speculative manner offered, not declared? Is room left for the rebounding transference? Is room made to play between psychic and material realities? Is depth found and refound and refound through the affect of what is said and the charge of the relational bid that is made? I ask these questions not because I think they distinguish queer theoretical textual analyses from clinical analyses. I don't. I ask these questions because clinical psychoanalysis does not only bring a mode of knowing, a set of propositions through which theorists can glean philosophical positions or tenets. Clinical psychoanalysis also brings a mode of practice that rests on the action of interpretation and modes of interpretation that are different from modes of knowledge. I am reluctant to know the other. I prefer to keep company, to play in reality, keeping present where keeping present has an unexpected relation to the limits of knowing. 
How one works with the limits of knowing and the action of play are, in my view, part of any good enough psychoanalytic practice. An unknowing that affords the exploration of the relational possibilities to be discovered in the transference and countertransference. Play that opens into a mode of suspension and holding a complex potential space that allows for and depends on reverie. An intriguing example of the tensions between knowing and unknowing can be found in a founding queer theory text, Michael Moon's 1998, A Small Boy and Others, where he offers readings of both Henry James and Andy Warhol's boyhoods. In approaching James, Moon zeroes in on repetitive themes, fantasies, and scenes of repressed and enacted desires, as well as offering a keen reading of the social order in which James found himself as a boy. Through a cautiously constructed interpretive arc, Moon articulates a set of processes he holds to have been formative of James' queer childhood. Daring, dramatic uncanniness, risky weirdness, erotic off-centeredness, uniquely tuned perception and imitation, hypermimesis, unapologetic perversity, and a precocious acquaintance with grief. The pace of the interpretations rendered by Moon could be called Winnicottian. Moon takes care to stay one step behind James, not ahead of James. Speculation is offered, not declared. Room is left for the rebounding transference. Suspension, playing between psychic and material reality, is key here as one seeks to live in the complex matrix of relational potentialities. In the same text, Moon moves on to contemplate Andy Warhol's childhood. This analysis follows not on the basis of a book-length autobiography, but on one paragraph of one of Warhol's autobiographies a paragraph Moon reads as a screen memory, a condensed scene that draws on actual events but is also composed of imaginary elements. At odds with the Winnicottian pacing of his analysis of James, Moon approaches Warhol in a matter that is more in keeping with Melanie Klein's determination to interpret unconscious processes quickly and with authority. Klein held that human life followed and faltered on an endogenous sadistic impulse and instinct and aggressive responses to frustration. Good and bad are set up in the psyche and undergo a complex play of projections. The authority offered here is declarative, not speculative. Andy's memory is quickly named as indicative of sexually symbolic conflicts, castration, phallic narcissism, anality, and the primal scene. These interpretations may indeed be precise and direct. They strike me, however, as interpretive moves that leap too far, are hasty, and determined by the necessity of predetermined and presupposed signposts of depth, as opposed to the depth that emerges through the affect of what is said and the charge of the relational bid that is made. Symbolic interpretations that are offered without equal attention to the ways in which symbols emerge and merge with affect and relational exchange do not afford a more subtle and contingent symbolic reading. They also risk the foreclosure of play, reverie, and the suspended mental freedom found therein. Consider here the unique and original names that Moon offers as he catalogs the processes that underscore James's boyhood as opposed to the stations of the cross, classical psychoanalytic vocabulary he employs in describing Warhol. 
I voice this critique with regret because I believe these ideas should be a point of debate. Mrs. Klein, as she was known, would, I am sure, take issue with my position. And perhaps Moon, too, would have good grounds to challenge my assessment of his differing interpretive strategies. After all, Warhol was famously inarticulate and virtually mute. Warhol could have left one with little interpretive room beyond the declarative. Still, there is cause for debate, and in relation to a project as complex as theorizing queer childhoods, progress can only come from this confrontation of opinion and the theoretical work that compels us to do it. I often find myself suspended, my mind rearranged through the reverberations of reverie. I find myself in this state with both adult and child patients. But at times it is made especially clear with child patients as I am caught in the vista of a child's vision and led toward a life suspended, playing in reality, moving as children are wont to move between material reality and psychic reality, moving as transference and countertransference move in accord with the varying relational potentialities moving as my mind circles around what they may be trying to tell me about their experience of being socially ordered. The construction of this transforming nexus seems especially important in work with queer children. Outside a protected potential space within which a queer child may become, he is left to construct an anxious, narcissistic approximation. He is left in the poignant pain of foreclosed space. He is left to beckon the mirror. While he may be able to turn toward a shadowed, melancholic retreat, he is given little in the way of a progressive push or the license of a queer imagination through which he might hope for and work toward securing more productive attachments. I have learned, I have learned among, along with a number of queer children, the importance of establishing a reliable potential space, one that opens on to practice as well as the kind of reflection necessary to work through troubling states of anxiety and the shadow of shame. I sometimes wonder if this nexus, this place of practice, this safe return, may be the most important thing I have to offer the children I see. My experience with queer, genderqueer children and their families has afforded me the opportunity to consider how these children and their parents create moments within which the social order of gender is challenged. Within such moments, a transforming nexus of gender transfer and malleability is created. Gender is resignified through collective intersubjective fantasies and terms. Bonds are forged. These bonds, this challenge to the prevailing order, can be created through a wide range of relational dynamics, fantasies, material conditions, and beliefs as is true for any parent-child bond. Slipping the symbolic may occur through freedom as well as through alienation. Moments of malleability open through loving protection, just as they may open through malignant seduction. Speaking to power may follow upon mental freedom or mental anguish. How and when and whether a transforming nexus is fashioned is as individual as any parent-child pair. It has been my overwhelming clinical experience that those children who can, along with their parents, create a holding environment fare much better as they move into the outside world. Across time, this parent-child dialogic is internalized 
and comes to serve as a voice that privileges the child's peculiar ideality, offers solace in the face of normative cruelty, and holds out hope for these children and the hope they need to imagine themselves otherwise. I have consistently found it to be the case that those children who cannot establish this holding, transforming nexus do not fare nearly as well as they move out into a world of school and others outside their family. Many permutations of this parent-child breakdown can occur, and many psyches follow. But one pattern that I have had frequent opportunity to analyze is of an abject young person caught in a web of loss. This melancholic condition is usually accompanied by self-reproach and self-torment. In my second consultation with a boy I will call Lincoln, he discovered that I could draw and asked me to draw some mice, which I did. He colored them, six pink, one green, and cut them out. He seemed less pleased with the green mouse, which he crumpled but then attempted to uncrumple. He did not animate them, he did not give them voice, or play with them, per se. He held them, shuffled them, and admired them. At the end of the hour, he put them under my radiator, where, as it turned out, they lived for the next three years. During his visits to see me over those three years, he would immediately go to the radiator, check on the mice, but never move them. He always seemed pleased to find them, though he did not say much about them. I pondered the mice in many ways. Were they an illustration of majority rule, one odd man out? The majority in this case, though, was pink. Was that Lincoln's way of pushing back? Were the mice closeted? Was the green mouse the shun character that would later appear in his games? Or was the green mouse the melancholic, the aggrieved, the diminished, the shamed, the mouse crumpled by self-reproach, the one that could not speak his identity? the one that may paradoxically take refuge in suffering and through a kind of circular insanity ward off his suffering through the manic display of his difference. See me, I am green. Look away, I am crumpled. In the end, I found that I said little about the mice. It was their security that appeared to matter most, and once they were secured and sustained, it seemed enough. It appeared in some sense to be a pledge. In retrospect, it seems the sheltering of the mice served as an opening gambit, a marker of the task at hand, the task of creating a secure space, one that holds but does not immediately or perhaps ever fully articulate a complex set of affects, serving instead to open onto the practice to come. I speak of practice to denote the practice of psychotherapy, but also in this case the practice of gender. Probably the most salient theme that developed across Lincoln's treatment was what I came to think of as scenes of practice. Lincoln spent much of the first year in treatment dressing and undressing Barbie dolls, commenting on the success of Barbie's various outfits, making alterations to her hair, and eventually to her clothes. Initially, these scenes were inevitably, or these scenes inevitably came to chaotic and aggressive conclusions. Lincoln would undress the dolls hurriedly, casting the dolls aside. The contents of the scene would be scattered and rendered, quote, a mess. I began to think of these scenes as the mess of shame and the curtailing work of practice. 
or wreck of practice. I also pondered the ways in which these scenes could enact melancholic despair, remorse, and self-torment. Barbie was debased, made to suffer, and sadistic satisfaction was derived therein. The dynamics of crossing and the constituting practice of gender are not addressed in the traditional discourse on gender queer children. The variety of affects and dilemmas that arise for gender, this gender queer or the gender queer boy in his quest for social recognition are not examined as socially constructed or located. Rather, in the traditional discourse, they are seen as manifestations of a specific psychic pathology. They are not seen as honorable social relational bids. They are seen as troubled psychic enactments. The boys are depicted as locked in persecutory, compulsive imitations of their mothers, and interpretations are aimed at these enactments and named as the boys' efforts to simultaneously express and disown their own desperate attachment to their mothers. I noted with Lincoln, as I have with other genderqueer boys, that the anger that emerged in the treatment was not directed at a traumatized and unavailable mother. The anger that emerged in the transference and in various play themes was anger at a mother at an other who could not consistently help him metabolize his variant subjectivity. Lincoln's anger almost always voiced the plaint of grievance, one might call the dialect of the melancholic, Complaints such as she's messed up, her hair is nasty, her shoes are ugly, inevitably imploded, and sad rejection withdrawal emerged. Barbie was undressed and dejectedly cast aside. It was important to follow this character who met with such rough justice and was left with no ally, no voice. At one juncture, Lincoln spoke of the unclothed, messy Barbie as, quote, a girl who wanted too many things, adding, quote, she deserves to be punished, revealing yet another feature of the melancholic's tendency toward self-reproach and self-hatred. Initial efforts to compare this character to Lincoln and to wonder whether he too might feel the same were met with adamant refusal. Several weeks later, though, Lincoln returned to a similar scene, and this time unprompted, began to describe the shun character as tired, Quote, that's why she is lying down, and mad, quote, that's why she is naked. When asked whether she might not feel lonely, Lincoln said, no, she was too mad. I was struck by this response and the ways in which it might capture the abjection of melancholia. Don't disturb my angry withdrawal. Don't disturb my self-reproach and shame. Through these emotional states, the melancholic guards his lost love and identity. But slowly, Lincoln approached his melancholy. We began to give voice to the shun character's sense of loneliness and objection. Eventually, we could approach the shun girl and were able to redress her, comb her hair, feed her, and let her rest. In my final consultation with Lincoln, I had the enlightening opportunity to question him about, quote, the harsh things, his phrase, in his mind. We were drawing together, and he was using colored pencils to draw an underwater scene, one that I, had re- I recognized as mimicking the world of the Little Mermaid, a character who intrigued Lincoln, as she has many of the gender queer boys with whom I have worked. 
I said that I wonder whether he liked Ariel, not because, not only because she was pretty and had long hair, as he had previously indicated, or whether it might also be the case that he felt like her, caught between two worlds. Ariel is caught between the world of the sea and her desire to join the earthly world of humans. I wondered whether Lincoln might not feel caught between the world of boys and the world of girls. He fell silent for a long while looking at his drawing and then handed it to me. He said it was a present. I thanked him. I then suggested that sometimes presents cover pain. I said kind of like a trick. I went on to say that Ariel feels a lot of pain and sorrow. My mind was moving in at least two directions at this juncture. I was thinking of the gravity of the original Hans Christian Andersen story, of the weight of fateful decisions and how the pain of transformation is revealed. In order to gain her legs, the Little Mermaid agrees to endure great pain. Might this be the way I was thinking for Lincoln to express the pain of normative regulation, the price he was paying? I wondered further whether sometimes his, quote, bright girly play was not only fun, but, well, bright, and, well, bright, but also a trick to disguise the anger, sadness, and pain that he felt. He was quick to remind me, quote, Ariel is happy in the end, fortified as he was by the Disney camp romance that colors the studio's Little Mermaid. I acknowledged that, in fact, that was true, but added that day-to-day -day life does not always work out as well as cartoons do. He gave me one of those looks that children often do, as if to say, yes, yes, you adults and your reality. He did allow, though, that sometimes he felt sad and he felt mad, states that he had been so very reluctant to recognize earlier in his treatment, and a recognition that has the potential to move one toward the accomplishment of grief and out of the deadlock of melancholia. I venture, though, that Lincoln was also pointing out that accommodation does not stop with a one-way adjustment. Reality bends. Many genderqueer boys seek to preserve their feminine identifications, to seize moments of mobility, to join forces within minority communities, and to imagine their ways into a world where the social life of gender is more malleable. In that spirit, we did not move within this treatment toward a summarizing, originary explanation. The treatment moved, if anywhere, toward less fixity and toward the construction of reflective space and a social comedy that could hold the probity of many origins. The narratives we pursued in the course of our work were in the service of Lincoln's need to establish better reflective resonance, less self-reproach, and greater mental freedom. Surely there were other narratives. Surely there will be other narratives. And just as surely there will be future recontextualizations, relations, and fantastic spaces through which Lincoln will reweave. Thank you.